This is Swordplay, Alex. Last weekend, those with their eyes toward the skies got to enjoy a super blood moon, and some pastors across the country are calling it a sign that we're living in the last days. Zero, 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 one. Zero, 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 two. Zero, 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 three. Zero, 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 four. Zero, 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 five. Alex, uh, what, what are you doing? Oh, I forgot my combination on my bike lock, so I know eventually if I keep guessing, I'll get it within 10,000 tries. Zero, 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 six, zero, 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 seven, zero, zero, zero. Wait, what was the question? This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in the very, very cold St. Paul, Minnesota right now. Yeah, you guys are experiencing the effects of global warming up there, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. We need to stop recycling and uh, put more gas in our cars because we are having a hard time up here. It is negative 30 degrees. I think with the wind chill, it's negative 50. Gracious. After this podcast, yeah, I'll have to uh, do a little experiment. They say if you throw a cup of boiling water out in the air when it's that cold it just instantly turns to snow we need video footage (laughs) (laughs) i'll be sure to send that your way on this episode of swordplay colossians chapter one colossians chapter one this is packed full of meat this is very very dense stuff so we're going to unpack it let that be a reminder to the reader to go read the book of Colossians, and you know what? Go ahead and read the book of Ephesians as well. You know what I wish, Nick? I wish I had a Bible where Ephesians and Colossians were right next to each other instead of being separated by Philippians. I wish Philippians was in a different spot because these two letters really go together. So go back and read those two books, all of you listeners in the audience today. Yeah, so let's uh, let's dive in because we've got a lot to cover. <clears throat> yeah. That's right. I guess we'll talk about authorship first, right? Yeah, who wrote the book of Colossians? Well, verse 1 right there, Paul, uh, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So There you go. Uh, this is the apostle Paul, and a lot can be said about him. A lot can be said about him, and we just don't have time to dig too deep into that. But uh, uh, you have something you want to address in this, though, don't you, Alex? Right. Uh, Paul did write this letter. I believe that. But be aware, though. Uh, some more liberal scholars will accuse Ephesians and Colossians as being counterfeit, not really from Paul. And that's mainly due to these letters exhibiting a different writing style and maybe thematic emphasis when compared to Paul's other letters. However, it's important to keep in mind that Paul often used an amanuensis, and that may account for the differences in writing style. And it's also reasonable to expect Paul to tailor his style and theme to the audience and the problem that he's addressing. So not to mention that the earliest Christian writings that we have, we call the Apostolic Fathers, they all received these letters as authentic, Ephesians and Colossians. So there you go. That's a good point. Yeah. Well, to whom then, if Paul was the author, did he write to? Who was the book of Colossians written to? Well, uh, right there, verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So he's writing to the church in Colossae, as well as Alex. That's right. Chapter 4, verse 16, let's not remember that he also says this letter is for the church at Laodicea. It's been long suspected that the Ephesians letter was possibly like a circular letter that was meant to go around in the different churches in Asia Minor. Uh, Perhaps Colossians also was meant to circulate among the churches, especially in light of the explicit command to go ahead and swap letters with Laodicea. So that's pretty interesting. Yep. Well, Nick, when was the letter written then? Well, tough to put a book, chapter, and verse on this one. (laughs) But uh, best we can tell, uh, and this is where I fall with this, I date um, this letter to Paul's Roman imprisonment, which would have been sometime in 62 to 64 AD, somewhere in there. And so Colossians would have been written, along with all his other prison correspondence, uh, right. Ephesians and Philippians and Philemon. And we'll talk about how some of these books play off each other in a few minutes. But uh, 
62, 64 AD, somewhere in there. What yeah, I agree. I agree with that. It, it had to have been during some sort of imprisonment, right? Chapter 4, verse 3, verse 10, verse 18, they all talk about imprisonment. So uh, I'm right with you on that one. Now, in this letter, when we look at the Colossian church, they had some problems. What problems did the Colossian church have, Nick? Well, in a word, several. <laughs> um, <laughs> one was, uh, let's call it the degradation of Christ, and it was coupled with the exaltation of angels. And hmm. you see a pretty strong emphasis on that in 1 verse 15 through 22 verse 18 as well. Right. So what Paul does is he presents Christ as supreme. Yes. And angels are not to be worshipped. So uh, there's that. Second is uh, it could be pre or early Gnosticism. Hmm. Yep. Gnosticism, which was the philosophical school that sought for knowledge um, two verses, three and four, verse 18 as well. Uh, you see some of the early roots of Gnosticism, I believe, in uh, what's going on with Colossae. So Paul presents Christ as being the one in whom all wisdom and knowledge is found and um, stands in opposition to all those visions that uh, the uh, pre-Gnostics are claiming. And then there's uh, third, Jewish ceremonialism, uh, two verse 11, verses 16 through 17 as well, to, uh, 3 verse 11. So Paul then presents Christ as the substance over and against the shadow of the Jewish ceremonialism. Sure. And so since you have a, kind of the merging of all these various religious worldviews, there's a big word for this. It is syncretism. And all that means is there is essentially a syncing up or a combining of these worldviews into a singularity. And that seems to be what's going on here in uh, the church in Colossae. Does that make sense? Yeah, it sure does. I think syncretism is a good summary. I like what you said there. I think what appears as the early seeds of Gnosticism that you've been mentioning, that may actually just be the presence of Jewish mysticism. And that would be a group of Jews claiming to have some special knowledge or place of authority based off of some induced spiritual experience that they've had, or experiences, plural. Uh, those were induced probably through what they call harsh treatment of the body. So it's kind of a combination of what you gave us option two and three with early Gnostic thoughts and then Jewish ceremonialism. You take those to the extreme, you have this thing called Jewish mysticism. So they would be claiming to have angelic messages retrieved by them in the heavenly realms that they had during these dreams or visions. Uh, that would fit in nicely with Colossians 2.8 about the worship of angels and Paul condemning that sort of thing. Now in this sort of context, knowledge likely does not refer to some sort of intellectual aspect like we think of, but rather knowledge probably is being referred to by this audience as the mystical experience or vision that they used to set one up as an authority figure. Now Paul's going to flip that kind of thinking on its head by showing where true knowledge comes from and what it looks like in the life of a Christian. and We'll right. get there momentarily. Now, Nick, why then was this letter written? Yeah, so if the problem, the occasion, is all this syncretism, uh, where I come in with the purpose is that Paul is refuting the Colossian syncretism, uh, the the syncretistic heresy, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and he does that by exalting Christ as supreme. Uh, also, I, I like uh, one idea that the prayers of Paul, when you come across these in his epistles, they kind of serve as purpose statements as well. And so verses like 9 through 12 of chapter 1, where he has this prayer that wants to be filled with knowledge of his will, um, etc., uh, I think that could also come into play here uh, a bit. Um, what say you? Yeah, I think that's a good hermeneutic, using Paul's prayers as a, a clue or a decipher for the uh, purpose of the letter. I would say that uh, perhaps another purpose is that the true wisdom, knowledge, riches, and power found in Christ, those ought to impact our lives. So therefore, Paul wants these Christians to live worthy in their family context, in their work context. And that's going to be motivated and guided by this true knowledge. So we're going to unfold what that true knowledge is in Christ, how it compares to the 
uh, false knowledge perhaps going on in the background with certain folks. And as we look at Colossians, we also have to keep in mind other letters that Paul wrote, looking at the intertextuality. So what relationship, Nick, does Colossians have with Ephesians and Philemon? Well, first, uh, they're all what are called prison epistles. They're written at the same time. Um, I'm persuaded during this Roman imprisonment that Paul uh, endures. Uh, Next, Paul's exaltation of Christ as supreme in Colossians is very similar to his same line of argumentation in the book of Ephesians. So there's commonality in those themes, and a lot of the themes keep showing up again and again, uh, a lot of the same common themes in both of those epistles. Also, uh, people that are named in the book of Colossians are also named in the book of Philemon. I think of Aristarchus, uh, Archippus, uh, Tychicus seems to have been the courier for both the Ephesian and Colossian correspondence. He's named in both. So uh, those are a few connections. What other things are there uh, here, Alex? Well, you may remember way long ago when we did podcast episode number one. Yeah. And that swordplay episode was on Philemon. So Dig you can back go back to the archives. That's right. <laughs> you can go back and listen to Philemon. Um, it was possible that the church in Colossae, or at least one of the congregations in Colossae, met in Philemon's house. Uh, mm-hmm. Paul words it that way. That makes it a possibility in Philemon. It's interesting how we have Paul pleading on Onesimus's behalf in the book of Philemon. But then in Colossians chapter 4, verse 9, we see perhaps the same Onesimus being sent back with Tychicus after maybe a reconciliation had already occurred with Philemon, or maybe concurrent with the reconciliation alongside the letter that was sent to Philemon. Right. It's really interesting to piece that together. It almost becomes like a movie, right? You have this epic journey. Well, that's some connections I saw between Colossians and Philemon. Now, Ephesians and Colossians have nearly the exact same phrasing, as you pointed out earlier. Uh, you see these touch points used throughout each letter. I think it's reasonable, Nick, to use Ephesians as an interpretive guide as we study through Colossians. And I'll probably say the same thing when we get to Ephesians. We'll do vice versa. So much in the same way that we often compare the synoptic gospels to glean more information about the same event or the same teaching or the same parable, uh, I think we can use Ephesians and Colossians in a similar manner to say, okay, he has an idea here. What else does he say about the same idea in Ephesians? And I think that will help us as we study Colossians. Yeah. Um, well, let's dig into the text here, and we'll start in verse 2. And All right. Paul is writing to the saints who are yes. in Colossae. Alex, who are the saints? And I guess we're not talking about the New Orleans saints who didn't make it <laughs> a Super Bowl. Who, who are the saints, and what makes one a saint? Good question. The Greek here is hagios. It means holy ones. It's equivalent to the Old Testament uh, Hebrew kadoshim. The significance may lie in the fact that the angels are often called holy ones in the Old Testament, like Job chapter 5 verse 1, chapter 15 verse 15, Psalm 89 verse 5 through 7, Zechariah verse 14, uh, chapter 14 verse 5. That's just a sampling of that uh, use of the word Kedoshim, applying to angels. This also occurs in the Apocrypha, so the Wisdom of Sirach 42.17, that talks about how even the holy ones don't completely understand all the mysteries of God's creation. This happens in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, 1QM, chapter 12, verse 6, uh, talks about the holy ones being among us for protection as an alliance. It's in the Old Testament Pseudopigrapha. First Enoch, chapter 1, verse 9, talks about God coming in judgment with his holy ones. By the way, Jude chapter 1 verse 14 quotes that passage. And we talked about that in our Jude podcast, episode number 2. Now, the ancient Near East is also scattered with references to divine beings as holy ones. And all that to say, if anyone in Colossae would try to say that they have superior knowledge based on some angelic vision, such a claim, even if they did have some vision, such a claim would be rendered neutral since every Christian is now called a holy one in Christ. In other words, no special angel visions would give someone more authority in the church, since both the angels and the Christians are now holy ones. Of course, one earthly and one heavenly, but still, you might have some intentional use of this word by Paul. 
in this letter, in his other letters. I don't know. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, take that, you Jewish mystic or <laughs> pronostic or whatever. That's right. Uh, the NIV says, uh, holy, holy and faithful brothers. Um, and I, I agree with uh, with your assessment. Saints are the holy ones of God. Um, it's an idea that conveys uh, separation. Uh, we are set apart to God for his holy purposes. Uh, we're made holy by Christ, by what he did on the cross, his completed work in the gospel. So, I like that. Made holy by Christ, completed in the gospel. That brings us to our next question, though. When did the Colossians first hear the gospel? Well, it seems like Paul was not the one who established the church in Colossae. What? Uh, I say, yeah, (laughs) surprise, surprise. I say that because of what's said in 2 verse 1, um, where he talks about how he has not seen them face to face. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. That's right. So the most probable explanation that uh, is out there is that uh, Epaphras, he was probably the one who established uh, the the Colossian church. Uh, he was leading it at the time of the writing, um, uh, and he was probably instrumental in some capacity in the neighboring cities. Uh, and there are clues in the text, like 1 verse 7, 4 verses 12 and 13, which seem to hint at the fact that he was ministering not just in Colossae, but around the area as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think you're right on. It seems that we're um, following the same trail here. Though it seems that Paul didn't directly establish the Colossian church, as you mentioned, he did, however, do quite a bit of work in one of the other cities in Asia Minor, right? Ephesus. Mm -hmm. He stayed two years teaching at the school of Turanus, and as a result, all who lived in Asia Minor... Of course, it just says Asia, but I'm throwing in Asia Minor because we're not talking about China. This is modern-day Turkey, by the way. All who lived in Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That can be found in Acts chapter 19, verses 9 through 10. Well, Nick, what does it mean in verse 6 when it says that the gospel is bearing fruit in all the world? Well, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and call this... uh Hyperbole. Okay. Uh, An exaggeration. Could be a bit of hyperbole. Uh, Just kind of characterizing the rapid growth of the gospel. You don't think Uh, they made it to Australia? Yeah, I (laughs) don't think so. South America? Uh, I think they're talking about the known world, which would have been kind of Inuits in Antarctica? Mediterranean. (laughs) (laughs) The Mediterranean uh, area there. Yeah. and so just the, the Roman Empire and everything that, uh, or every part of the Roman Empire, the gospel had gone to those various corners. So no, not South America, Antarctica, or Australia. Uh, what say you? I'm going to actually save my thoughts on this when we get to verse 23. Ah, you weasel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a connection between verse 23 and this verse right here. So I'm going to tell you what I think For it sure. is. At the end of the podcast, bum, bum, bum. So next question, verse 7. Nick, who is Epaphras? Paul calls him a servant of Christ, also calls him a faithful minister of Christ um, in verse 7 here. Servant of Christ may be just kind of a non-technical term that is designed to identify Epaphras or Epaphras as a minister of the gospel. He was apparently involved in other churches in the area, Laodicea, Hierapolis. Uh, The theory is that Epaphras met Paul in Ephesus while Paul was, as you said, teaching in the school of Tyrannus. He became a student of Paul, and then he took the gospel back with him to his hometown, Colossae. And uh, that may have happened about a decade before this letter was written and sent. Um, What do you say? I think that makes a lot of sense. It kind of blows my mind thinking of uh, Epaphras or Epaphras as being the guy who went out of one of those, uh, you know, teaching semesters from Paul at the School of Tyrannus and establishing all these churches. I think that's uh, pretty mind-blowing. It makes a lot of sense, though. You know, Colossae, Laodicea, 
Herapolis. These were all sister cities. They created sort of a tri-city area down in the Lucas River Valley in Asia Minor. And so their, clo- their close proximity to each other would have made it natural for Epaphras to travel between all three cities, spreading the gospel. And thus that would make sense for his concern for all three of them. What do you think, Nick? No, that's... Uh, I'd... Right on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Double team. High that's five. That's right. High five. Too. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Fist bump. Um, how about verse 8? Let's talk about verse 8 for a sec here. All right. This is a tricky and, one. Um, yeah, he has made, known, has made known to us your love in the Spirit, is how my ESV reads. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so what does it mean to love in the Spirit? Yeah, technically, the original language here just says love in Spirit. And I'll spare you the Greek grammar this time, okay? Oh, thank goodness. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> However, seeing this, though, as the Holy Spirit, it's, it's workable. It works in the context. That's perfectly fine. Nothing wrong with that. Thus, Paul may be saying that they are, he's complimenting them, that they, he hears of them loving each other through the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit, working in their lives. That fix, that's, that's contextual, it's coherent. Here's another possibility. Paul may just be saying that the Colossians have love for all Christians, even the ones they haven't personally met, just like Paul loves them, but he hasn't personally met them. Um, so how does, he, how does that love work? It's a spiritual sense of love. It, it happens in the spiritual realm, like when you're praying for all the saints, you know, your, your prayer connects you to the spirit realm. So that could be another uh, possibility. Because, like we said, the, the word the isn't in there. It's not a capital S spirit. That's an interpretive move. And it might be a correct interpretive move, but it's not necessary. Another possibility, though, in the spirit, that phrase, um, the preposition ain, uh, epsilon nu, uh, ain numati, in the spirit, that's a phrase in the New Testament often used to speak of someone who is saying something under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this could be saying that Epaphras gave them this information about their love, and it was no less authenticated than by the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's a Holy Spirit-inspired piece of information that they are indeed loving each other, loving the saints, and that would be quite a high compliment. What do you think, Nick? So here's the perfectly workable uh, way that I see it here um, with the with the Spirit here being the Holy Spirit. And um, I think that's what's going on. Although the love in the Spirit is, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He mentioned earlier in 1 verse 4 uh, that the love that they have for all the saints. Sure. Um, one of the fruit of the Spirit is love, so the Spirit of God is bearing fruit in their lives. That's where I fall. Yeah. Uh, but I don't disagree with the other possibilities there. It's workable. All right, verse 9, Nick. We get into this prayer of Paul. Right. We start digging into it. A lot of stuff here. We have this instance in verse 9 where Paul prays for God to fill them with the knowledge of his will. Nick, maybe this is a metaphysical question, but how does God fill us with the knowledge of his will? Isn't every question about God a metaphysical question? <laughs> um, <clears throat> technic- yeah, yeah t- technically speaking, we're, we're looking at two kinds of knowledge here. All right. Um, and there are two kinds. There's intellectual knowledge and there's experiential knowledge. Intellectual knowledge is just knowing the facts about something, information. It's mm-hmm. important, mm-hmm. but Scripture always calls us further. It calls us to embrace transformation based on that information. And so that's where this experiential knowledge comes in, and I believe that's what's being spoken of here based on the word that Paul uses here. Uh, it's a full knowledge, and ultimately, to experience that full knowledge, you must be rooted in obedience, and that's how we come to fully know God is through obedience. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's well said. I'm reminded of Ephesians 3.19, where, again, using Ephesians and Colossians together, where Paul prays for them in that prayer. That's a powerful prayer, too. Go back and look at that, Ephesians 3. He prays for them in that prayer to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Right. 
So I would say the knowledge of his will then leads us to know the love of Christ. It's more than just this uh, intellect basis of facts, information, like you said, important. But there's something different going on here. There's an experiential side going on here, which is key, I think, to the problem going on at Colossae with these other folks having experiences that they say make them superior. But remember now, it also says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, that you be filled in the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So based off of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 3, 3, by the way, just because there's a chapter break there between 1 Corinthians 2 and 3, there's not a topic break. It's the same conversation. It keeps going. That's important when you're reading that. In that context, spiritual wisdom and understanding is the mark of a mature Christian. And then in that context, Paul calls the immature Christians fleshly. Well, what makes them fleshly? He says, again, in that context, their jealousy and their strife makes them fleshly. So this circle says back around to true knowledge being that which expresses itself in love towards each other because of the knowledge of the love of Christ towards us. And I think Paul's going to hit on this again, especially when we get to Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So well, any thoughts, Nick? No, I think that uh, that's well said as well. <laughs> I, don't, I feel like uh, I can, you know, too many words can complicate a simple, ma- simple matter, right? True knowledge is, is expressed in the true love of Christ. We can summarize it that way. Well, that brings us to verse 10, though. What does it mean, Nick? To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He builds this on top of what he just said in verse 10. What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Well, again, we see um, the intersection of doctrine and ethics. Doctrine and ethics, they are inseparable for Paul. Uh, creed and conduct, belief and behavior, they go together. So the full knowledge of God's will, uh, which you know we talked about in verse 9, that is going to manifest in day-to-day living. That's right. Um, The more we, as God's children, know him, the more we will also love him. And the more we love him, the more we will also wish to obey him in thought, word, deed, and everything. Yes. Uh, So I think that's uh, what's being talked about here, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Uh, What do you think? I think that since in the previous question I stated that the true knowledge that Paul speaks of is that which expresses itself in love towards one another because of the love of Christ expressed towards us, then simply uh, put, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord is exactly that. So quit being immature. Start loving each other. And though we're not perfect, God loved us. He still loves us. He does this in spite of our imperfections. And that's a powerful thing. That's a motivating thing. So we can show that same kind of love towards one another. That would be walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, which, by the way, includes perhaps not being perfect in doctrine or perfect in intellect. What? What? (laughs) Very important when we see the word knowledge being thrown around here and how this doesn't necessarily mean, in fact, I don't think it does at all, that you have a perfect knowledge of doctrine, a perfect knowledge of theological intellect. I think that is the wrong direction. It doesn't fit the context. All right, Nick, what else we got? Uh, how about let's um, talk about verses 6 and 10 because there's this, uh, this uh, discussion about the gospel bearing fruit and then the Christian bearing fruit. Um, what is the difference... Uh, and I'll just go ahead, spoiler alert, I don't see a difference, but what's the difference between the Christian bearing fruit and the gospel bearing fruit? I think where the Christian goes, so goes the gospel, so I don't necessarily see a difference. You say? Well, perhaps I see a distinction, and perhaps that doesn't make a difference. (laughs) A distinction without a difference. But here's where I'm coming from. I always thought that the gospel bearing fruit referred to people becoming a becoming Christians. Right. And the foundation of belief in Christ has has thus been laid through the gospel and because of that you receive the free gift of salvation that's been received. But when Paul connects bearing fruit with every good work, that me that you know, to me that makes me think of something different. That makes me think of Christians having a reward 
in this talk about the Christian inheritance. And these are ideas discussed in previous podcasts, especially the series we did on Philippians. Mm-hmm. Now, Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 through 22, that if he is to live on in the flesh, then that would mean more fruitful labor for himself. So long story short, you can go back and listen to that to get the uh, expanded version, but the long story short is we have our salvation already in Christ. The gospel there bore its fruit then, but an additional reward and inheritance will be given based off of the work we do now. And as I've said in previous podcasts, I think that additional reward and inheritance has to do with the kind of resurrection body we receive and the measure of rulership we're given under Christ in the age to come. And I'll unpack some more of that in this episode as we go along as well. Any thoughts on that, Nick? No, I like the distinction without a difference. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Nick, how do we increase in the knowledge of God then in verse 10 if God already filled us with the knowledge of his will in verse 9? What's all this uh, filled, not filled, more filled? What's going on here? Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I I suppose we could and some have uh, parsed the words and the phrases to find the subtle nuances. Here's here's my take. I think we pray to be filled with knowledge of his will, but we can never truly be full of him since he himself is infinite. Um, but I view it kind of as a cycle. Um, as we come to be filled with him, we realize how little we truly have. So we seek to uh, be more filled or for a fuller filling and then he fills us only for us to see how much more we need of him. So we pray, and, and, and on it goes. It, it's an ongoing filling to fullness to be filled again to fullness. All right, that's kind of my take on it. What do you think? I like the way you worded it. It makes me think of the growth that occurs. Like you get full, and then you grow, and then you get full to a measure greater than the fullness you had before. Why? Because you grew almost like you see a little child who can only intake so much food and then as their body gets bigger and bigger they can intake more and more food i see it as cyclical as well if we're defining true knowledge the epigenosis in the greek there as the experience of god's love for you and then sharing that with each other then uh, paul prays for that cycle to be repeated god keeps filling you with the knowledge of his love you keep pouring that out in love and deed towards each other interesting the preposition of or in is not actually in the text so it literally says increasing the knowledge of god increasing the epigenosis of god perhaps another poke in the eye to the jewish mysticism folks who see their special knowledge and visions as limited and for the spiritual elite as opposed to the epigenosis that christ gives to us he makes it unlimited and expects everyone to increase in it isn't that interesting Mm-hmm. All right. Good stuff. Verse 11, plowing through the prayer. How, Nick, are we strengthened with all power? Verse 11. Is this another metaphysical question? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, all right. You know, there's a parallel passage over in Ephesians 3 and verse 16 where Paul, he prays a similar thing for the Ephesians. It's um, slightly different. The wording there is slightly different. But I believe it sheds light on this phrase because there he talks about how he wants them to be strengthened with all power through the Spirit. Right. Through the Spirit. And so someone might say, well, right, but what does that mean? And I hear you. It's a great question. Um, I think maybe something like this when we struggle in our power, um, is it any wonder that we end up angry or irritated or saying all kinds of foolishness to people, mm. chewing people out, complaining, things like that? That's because we're struggling in our own power. But in God's power, two things are specifically ours, uh, endurance and patience. They're listed here in verse 6. Yes. Uh, for all endurance and patience with joy as well. We can toss that in there. So... His Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit of God, He cultivates and He develops endurance and patience in us. In other words, when I don't lose my temper in traffic or when I am more patient with my wife and my children, God did that. I was strengthened with His power to do that. Um, that's that's my take on it. Um, Alex, what do you think? Hmm, I like what you're saying. 
It's kind of uh, like the opposite of learned helplessness. Mm. If you're not familiar with that concept, it's sort of that idea that says, I can't do something because um, of my situation. Uh, I'm helpless. I, I can't help but be this way or in this situation. Now, that can be very destructive uh, as a thinking pattern in someone's life. When the knowledge, though, of the Spirit of God strengthening us with power in our inner being, when we know that confidently, that if we choose to try and exercise a greater depth of love, patience, perseverance, then the supernatural power to draw upon will be there for you every single time. And that's despite our imperfections. God's power will still be there for us every time. I like that. It's really beautiful picture. Well, I think that brings us to verse 12, doesn't it? Yes, yes. What is our inheritance? Verse 12. What do you think, Nick? The uh, So there is a very rich Old Testament heritage um, that we could dig into uh, concerning inheritance, just the this concept to share in the inheritance. I'll say this, it's rooted in um, the Israelites portioning up the land for the tribes. The land was the inheritance which each tribe got a share of. And so Paul, here it seems, he appropriates that language and the concept to Christians. We, through Christ, now have a spiritual inheritance. That's a word about the Old Testament. Alex, you want to speak a word about the New Testament? I might have a lengthy word to speak about <laughs> the New Testament. Let's go ahead and uh, go on a little journey through the New Testament language concerning our inheritance. So first up, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. It says that the Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Now, Ephesians 1.14, I believe, matches up with Romans 8.23. Romans 8.23 says that we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, that's that pledge, that deposit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We are God's possession. We are his sons. But that will culminate in the receiving of our resurrection body. That's what I believe. And I think that is our inheritance. Uh, the Holy Spirit begins a transformation within us right now. But that transformation is an inner transformation that prepares the way for our outer transformation, which... Uh, Mentioned in the other podcast, you can go back and look at that. The fancy word for this is called theosis. Now, First Peter chapter one verses three through four says that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, will not fade away, reserved for you in heaven. There's a lot of touch points here that I'm going to point out. So viewing the resurrection body as what Peter calls there our inheritance, that makes sense in light of the fact that he says it's based off of Christ's own resurrection and that it won't fade away, etc., etc. Interestingly, Peter says then that this inheritance, which I say is the new body, he says it's reserved for you in heaven. Now compare that to uh, what we saw earlier in Colossians 1 verse 5 about the Christian hope. Where is it? Where is the Christian hope laid up for us? Colossians 1 5 says it's laid up for you in heaven. Now remember, Peter is saying that the inheritance, it's imperishable. That lines up perfectly with Paul's speech about our resurrection body in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That whole chapter is about the resurrection, by the way. But specifically, verse 50, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 50, he says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor the perishable inherit the imperishable. Then what will happen, Paul? He goes on to say that we'll all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Imagine that, Nick. Nick, imagine that the next time you blink your eyes, you could be standing in your resurrection body in heaven. Wow. That's how instant this will occur. 
Now, what degree of glory your body will have is dependent upon your deeds. That's our prize. As Paul says in Colossians 2.18, we'll get there later, we have the reward of our inheritance. Um, that's Colossians 3.24, actually. But anyway, Paul will also mention again in Colossians 2.18. But, but lots of stuff going on here, so... What I'm angling for is I think the inheritance has a lot to do with our body. Any thoughts, Nick? That's good stuff. Yeah, that's... I hope the next time I blink, I wake up in my resurrection body. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Nick, verse 12, what do we got? Uh, Let's talk about the saints in light. um, Because that's uh, Paul, he, he writes about the inheritance of the saints in light. Who are the saints in light? Well, we already talked about who the saints were. But the saints in light, um, well, let's see. Saints, we said, are holy ones. Right. So uh, if the saints in light is an intentional phrase used here, maybe it's alluding back again to the angels in in heaven, how they're described in that way. They're described as light beings, um, bright shining as the sun, wearing these garments that are bright white, whiter than anyone could, could bleach them or clean them. But instead of talking about angels, I think here it's, it's talking about us, just like it was earlier in the letter. So the Christian are holy ones in light. So as holy ones in light, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe that's why Jesus talks about our resurrection body being like the angels in Luke chapter 20, verse 36. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, no, I think that's right. This is uh just another phrase used to discuss Christians, that is, those who walk in the will of God, God who is light. Um, they seek knowledge of his will. They are doers of his will. They uphold and live according to a kingdom ethic. And so uh, these are those who live in uh, the kingdom of light as well. I think all these, all this to, to talk about Christians, Christians are the saints in light. <clears throat> all right. Well, Nick, now we're getting to um, the the good stuff. It's all good stuff, but I was looking forward to this next part, Nick. What yeah, is the, here we go. <laughs> what is the domain of darkness? And when and how are we transferred then to the kingdom of light? This is verse 13. What do you think? Yeah, so um, Paul's talking about something spiritual and what I mean is it's not a physical location. Like, we can't go to some place on the earth that is... Like, like um, I think of Dr. Doom in comic books who had Latveria, right? We can't go to, like, a place on the map and say, this is the country, the domain of darkness. Um, this is something that is cosmic. It is something that is spiritual in scope. Um, and... That is to say that Satan, we're told in Ephesians 2, verse 2, he is the prince of the power of the air. And so when when we choose rebellion, when we choose sin, we are essentially allying ourselves with the dark kingdom of Satan. But when we pledge allegiance to King Jesus, choosing solidarity with him in baptism, that's when the transfer takes place. And again, it's something that is um, spiritual, something that, that happens when we are redeemed and we experience the forgiveness of our sins, as is mentioned in verse 14. You say? So I I agree and disagree with you on certain aspects of this, <laughs> <Yeah>. okay? <laughs> All right. So I believe the domain of darkness and the kingdom of light are very much real places. Uh, But the boundaries are not determined by uh, physical landmarks or lines drawn on a map by governments. Sure. Um, The boundaries are determined by people, and the boundary lines are seen as light or darkness in the spirit realm. For example, God told Moses to take off his sandals when he appeared in the burning bush, right? Because that was holy ground. And where God's presence resides, then that place there is holy ground. This is the logic, I think, behind uh, Naaman, the Syrian, when he wanted to take a few wagons of dirt back with him after Elisha heals him from leprosy. I think he wanted holy ground. Uh, This is the logic behind the tabernacle and then the temple being sacred space because God caused his spirit to dwell there. It was holy ground. 
Now, New Testament update, the Holy Spirit dwells with the Christian, with the Christian community as a whole, with the church in our churches, making wherever we go and wherever we assemble holy ground. That means when more people become Christians, that creates more human tabernacles for God's Spirit, which then turns more space into holy ground, transforming it from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. Now, when and how we're transferred, I think, is spelled out in the Great Commission. You alluded to it, Nick, in uh, baptism. I think that's right. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20 says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, which I think was the necessary starting point, by the way, for conquering the domain of darkness. Uh, We'll talk more about that in chapter 2. He says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, uh, which, according to my view, what I just said, that would then create more holy ground. You baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Quick Greek note going on. In the name of this eisto onoma, it means into the possession of. We still use this in certain contexts today. If I sign my car title into the name of Nick Perez, my car now belongs to you, Nick. It's a transferring of property. Then he says, teaching them all I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. And so does this transfer happen in baptism? Yes. Um, Is the domain of darkness and kingdom of light a spiritual realm thing? Yes. But does it also at the same time uh, have a presence on the physical earth? Yes. Any thoughts? (laughs) No, I I mean, that's that's good stuff. I think... um the the marking out of territory i mean for me it's it's hearts right that's that's the heart and you kind of alluded to that with more people becoming christians there's more light and all that um uh, but uh i think let's see i think we would agree that um you, you mentioned a lot about space kind of sacred space versus the soiled space of darkness um i think we would agree like people, people who have aligned themselves with the kingdom of darkness can stake a claim on certain area, a certain certain place. Oh yeah, and that place becomes kind of a a dark place, and kind of bad stuff happens there. And absolutely, I think of I think of um. There's a place in Merced where I used to be a minister. Um, and it's right on one of the main thoroughfares, but there's a lot of hotels where low-income, no-income folks, they, they live there. A lot of bad stuff goes down there, um, human trafficking, prostitution, um, substance abuse, things like that. Um, what's fascinating is that used to be, uh, way back in like the 20s and 30s, it used to be a place where there was a lot of kind of shady stuff, bootlegging and gambling and things like that. They tore all that stuff down, rebuilt hotels on top of it, and now those hotels are hotbeds for all kinds of bad stuff again. Wow. What's fascinating is if you go underneath, under uh, in the underground, uh, there used to be, um, this is what I've been told, uh, catacombs, um, tunnels that were built for... Um, Chinese slave labor folks, and um, it's part of their culture. The Chinese engage in a lot of ancient um, or ancestor worship, I should say, and which is essentially idolatry. So you have all this idolatry that's going down underground, hmm. and it's affecting the stuff that's on the surface. And you see a place that you had bad stuff going on there, and even though they tore it down and rebuilt on it, now it's gone back and reverted to this bad place as if as if that's that's a soiled space cursed ground yeah yeah yeah, exactly yeah i think that's i think that's a real thing all all the things that you're describing can easily be accounted for yeah through biblical ideas just as we said no government right no government marked that territory off Right. right um no no there's no landmarks there that say hey this is uh this is uh darkness right Mm -hmm. um but nevertheless it is kind of a a territory that's been infested with um 
kind of spiritual forces of darkness. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It reminds me of my own mission trip to India and other uh, missionaries who come back from parts of the world that are, are very dark in a spiritual sense, and they can almost, uh, from my own personal experience, you can almost feel like something thick and heavy in the air, like not just the, the Indian humidity, right? It's something different than that. <laughs> it's, mm. it's something supernaturally dark, and I think there are going to be lots of people who, uh, if they feel comfortable talking about it, can relate to certain intuitions and experiences that they have with seeing or feeling some spiritual force of darkness. And this is a real thing present among us. And the solution, I mean, the solution is we need to make more Christians to occupy more holy space because holy space pushes away cursed space. It pushes away darkness. So you can't just tear down buildings and build new ones. It's like, no, 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 that, that space needs to be occupied by those who are dwellers of light. That's the only way to get rid of that. And, and how does that work? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, just like we see here in Colossians, like we see in Ephesians. So we got to remember the spiritual mindset, the supernatural worldview that is very much present in our Bible. And that's hard work for us today, I think, Nick, because of our uh, just our current context and the how natural it is to look for the material uh, scientific, physical explanation for things, right? Right. That's going to do it for part one. We're going to break this particular episode up into two parts. And so we want to invite you uh, to uh, stick around for part two, listen to that, and that'll conclude our discussion of Colossians chapter one. See you next time on part two of Colossians chapter one.